Gamma Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Michael McCubrey and Dr. Irving Dardick will join us to discuss cold fusion. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, on March 23, 1989, two scientists, Martin Fleischmann and Stanley Pons, announced that they had experimental evidence of nuclear fusion at room temperature. Since that first announcement of cold fusion, the field experienced an almost instant backlash and had since been relegated to the margins of science. Yet many researchers have continued to explore the idea, and it turns out that there might just be something to this idea after all. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Michael McCubrey and Dr. Irving Dardick. Dr. McCubrey is from SRI International, has performed many of these experiments, written extensively on the issue, and was recently featured on the 60 Minutes piece on cold fusion. Dr. Dardick is the originator of the superwave theory that has been used in many of these experiments and featured in the book Making Waves. They join us today to discuss this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. McCubrey, Dr. Dardick, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you both on the program. Uh, Dr. McCubrey, I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of a history of the Fleischmann and Pons experiment that started this whole field. Well, for good reasons or bad, I was perfectly poised to enter the fray on March 23, 1989. I was already working on the deuterium-palladium system, which was the subject of Martin Fleischmann and Stan Pons' publications and announcements. I actually did my postdoctoral work in Southampton, working on one of Martin Fleischmann's topics. So I knew both Martin and Stan Pons, and uh, as I've said to many people many times, had it been anybody else except Martin Fleischmann who had made that announcement, I, I don't think I'd have even bothered to enter my laboratory to test it out. I was familiar with the system, probably better positioned than most people in the world to understand that there was really nothing anomalous, either thermally or in a nuclear sense, in the deuterium-palladium system. But at that point in his career, Martin was the number one electrochemist in the world, certainly the cleverest experimentalist that I ever had the opportunity to work with. And because it was Martin, I gave it a 50-50 chance of being sound. I petitioned my sponsors at the time, the Electric Power Research Institute, to divert some of the funding that I already had to an experimental test of the hypothesis that there was unexpected levels of heat, nuclear levels of heat coming out of the electrolysis of palladium electrodes and heavy water electrolytes. We set up an experimental program, took three months to figure out what it was that we were going to do, another three months to run the experiment. And at the end of that time, we had confirmation of the hypothesis that there was nuclear level heat coming out of the experiment under circumstances that one would not have expected. And uh, this could not be accounted for again by any natural electrochemical or chemical mechanism? No, we were looking at heat. Even in those days, it was a hundred to a thousand times larger than the heat of the sum of all electrochemical or chemical reactions. So we knew it wasn't 
chemistry, we didn't know at that point that it was nuclear. We had no direct evidence of a nuclear effect, which is one of the reasons that there was so much discussion and controversy around it. Now, bear in mind that here I was already an expert in the field somewhat, and it had taken me six months to form an initial conclusion. Most of the people that entered the field did so in a very hurried way, did one or two primitive experiments, drew conclusions either on the positive or negative side, and the ones that did not have results and, and stated so publicly simply left the field. So, But these are difficult experiments, and if if I fault Martin for anything, and Martin's a, a dear friend and a very, very intelligent man, but the, the implication in that first press conference was that this was somehow easy. It, it wasn't easy then, and Martin and Stan had been working five years themselves already before 1989 to develop it to the point that they were at, and they still didn't have full command over their experiments. And this has been a constant problem with these experiments, is that the reproducibility has been dogging the experiments. Well, we've been inching up. In the last set of experiments that I ran with DARPA funding to replicate the work of uh, energetics inspired by my fellow guest, uh, Dr. Dardick, but we had 73% success rate. Now, 73% isn't 100%, obviously, and it's not what you would need for an energy technology, but... It's a long way forward of where we were in 1989, where we were getting 5 to 10% reproducibility. And in no small part, that high level of reproducibility is due to using the superwaves that Dr. Dardick has uh, introduced to the field, also improved quality of the, of the metal palladium. Dr. Dardick, I'll talk a little bit about this superwave principle that is applied now to the uh, experiments. The interesting thing about, from my perspective, is I came from the direction of medicine. I happen to have been a vascular surgeon, uh, working with the cardiovascular system, working with biological metabolism. And from that, I came up with the, a new understanding of how the rhythms in the body, in a living organism, actually behave as a fractal pattern, nested rhythms, waves within waves from the circadian right down to the microbiological systems, at the biochemical systems, the energy metabolism. And with the heart being central, which I call not a heart rate, but a heart wave, nested heartbeats climbing up and down the behaviors of the organism a human or, or any living organism. If we look at any living organism, all motion is rhythmic. And so I came down to the understanding. I, was, I had been reading about quantum physics and the subatomic physics and became intrigued with the notion that even at the atomic level, of course, I am made of atoms and molecules, not just molecules, not just molecular mechanisms, but they're made of atoms and particles which oscillate in perpetual motion and also that the particles themselves are waves. But I developed the understanding of the nested waves that we can pattern these waves in such a way using the electromagnetic waves and the uh, technologies that Mike McCubrey was describing, but patterning them in a fractal way that would, at the micro level, be influenced from the outer waves right down to the microscopic waves and create patterns of motion, heat, motion, the dynamics of what's going on in the deuterium, the deuterium th perceiving them as waves.
And with that idea, actually I applied for a patent in 1991, but it was turned down. They didn't even look at it because of the uh, hostility at that time toward the idea of cold fusion. But then back in the year 2000, I had met with a physicist, Dr. Herman Branover, and Ehud Greenspan from um, Berkeley, and they were intrigued enough, and we decided to move forward. Interestingly enough, Ehud Greenspan came with the idea that maybe there's a 1% chance this is right, and he, like Mike McCoubrey, said, well, there, after I hear about this and think about it, there's a 50-50 chance that this would have the influence, you say. And we set up a laboratory, a headquarters here in the U.S., and a laboratory in Israel, Energetics Technologies, and began, within six months, began the uh, experimental uh, laboratory work, and within six months after that began to have success, progressive, uh, which, as Mike said, went also from 5 to 10%, building up over the period of time, over several years, four or five years, to the 70-plus percent reproducibility that Mike was describing also at Energetics as well. And how is it that you think that these uh, super waves are improving the efficiency so much? Well, because the waves, nested waves within one another are peaking. If you can think of a heartbeat, now this is a, a model of this conceptually in the biological system. You know, we're always coming from physics to explain biology, and as I said, I came from the reverse. Uh, we always think of a heart rate printed out on a linear electrocardiogram, speeding up and slowing down if we do a stress test and sit down. But think of the heartbeat as a cycle of metabolism, of exercise and recovery, the heartbeat itself, climbing up exercise to the peak where if the heart rate was at 70, climbing up this heart wave to a peak of 170, where the heartbeat itself is the fastest and then slowing down during recovery. So in the peak, the waves of the heartbeat, the cycles themselves, are the most concentrated and the most motion, but also the highest frequency and amplitude ejection fraction at the same time. If you think of this then as nested chemicals climbing up and down each heartbeat, after all, the heart is pumping and the chemistry in, in the body is oscillating faster up and down as the heartbeat goes up and down. It's speeding up and slowing down. Well, think of the heartbeat climbing up to the peak where the molecules in the body, all the metabolism, is cycling up and down systole diastole in the peak of exercise. Well, that's what's also happening at the atomic level, that it's climbing up and down the molecular interactions and so forth, so the metabolism is in greatest motion in the peak. So if we can design the patterns of these superwaves, as I call them, to create nested dramatic motion of the inner cycles, of the inner waves at the peaks, then you'll have motion equivalent to heat. And, and have that, those patterns creating excess heat. Just as if I were to exercise, my body temperature would go up when I'm in the peak of exercise and then cool down, the cool down afterwards. And so it, it is nested waves within waves and motion and directing it in the proper pattern created these patterns of excess heat in combination with the loading, with the fluctuation, fluctuations as well as what's going on at the nuclear level itself. Um, Dr. McCoubrey, I'm wondering if you can maybe explain how experimentally this is actually implemented. Yeah, we, we missed a step in Irv's explanation, and after studying this now for more than 20 years, we, we understand what it is that we have to do in order to create the excess heat effect. We need to 
load deuterium into palladium to very high levels and cause motion of that palladium. I call it a flux. We have to move deuterium across the interface and through the lattice in order to produce the effect. If we can achieve those two things, and there's an initiation criterion, so we have to wait a little time. But if we achieve those two things, we will produce excess heat in every case. And one of the things that we've learned over the years is to explain our failures, which is highly advantageous. But those two criteria, loading and flux, are very difficult to achieve. It requires a lot of electrochemical skill that needs a very high quality of the metal palladium that is able to withstand both the loading and the flux. But but how to get both loading and flux? And I had understood this need as far back as 1995, but I didn't have any means of instituting it in my experiments. It either happened or it didn't. And it was when I first observed the startling success of the energetics team in producing results. Uh, they'd been working for, I think, less than a year before they produced their very significant results. I reported them in 2003 at the International Conference of Cold Fusion in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And these guys came from nowhere. I'd barely understood that they were even working. And here they were producing some of the best results in the world. So I was immediately interested and tried to find out more about it. And the thing that makes energetics unique, the contribution that they've made to the field, one of several, but the, the primary contribution at that point was this superwave idea. I, and I confess I didn't understand the idea. And being an electrochemist, I already thought that I understood how to load and how to move deuterium through the lattice. And this idea that Irv had come up with was very different to me, very strange. But, but you couldn't deny that they were achieving remarkable results. I approached them and, and what are you guys doing? How can I help? How can I learn from this? And set up a meeting with the sponsor of Energetics, in fact. He asked me, well, what, what's going on? What, what, is, what is it with uh, Energetics? And I said to him, either the group in Israel is the luckiest team in the world, or they have divine help, or there is something to what Irv Dardic is saying, and or maybe a combination of the three. But basically, what Superwaves allows us to do, allows anybody to do, and this is not restricted to cold fusion experiments, but what it allows one to do is to load hydrogen and its isotopes, including deuterium, into, into metals, including uh, palladium, and move them about at high rates. And if that is what your experiment needs, then superwaves are the answer. And they're there, in fact, the answer to a, to a number of problems. Hmm. And it's thought that when the deuterium then gets loaded in the palladium, that's when the fusion reaction takes place. Yeah, we don't really know exactly what is happening in terms of the nuclear reaction. We know that it's a nuclear reaction because the energies involved are thousands of times larger than the energies of chemical reactions. We've also observed products that are typical of fusion reactions. We've observed helium-3, helium-4, and tritium as products. So we have a sense that there is a, a nuclear effect and that deuterium is clearly implicated because these experiments do not produce results, at least in our hands, without high loadings of deuterium. It doesn't work with hydrogen. But it is also equally obviously not a scattering problem. It's not a two-body problem. And the, the physics community likes to think of a charged deuterium iron bashing into another charged deuterium iron at high relative velocities as a two-body reaction. If you do that, you get hot fusion products. Neutrons 
and tritium in large amounts. We don't see that. So we know we're dealing with many-body physics. We know we're dealing with a nuclear effect. And we know that it takes place in a lattice. And as uh, Julian Schwinger famously said, you know, the circumstances of cold fusion are not those of hot fusion. The fact that it takes place in a lattice changes both the reaction rate and the reaction products. And it is now up to our theorist friends uh, working together with the ideas that are out there, including Dr. Dardick's ideas, to try and come up with a mathematical mechanism for this process. But I'm an experimentalist. I do experiments. I try and do them as well as I can, testing a hypothesis, observe what I see, and try and make sense of it. So, you know, I'm at the point of being willing to pass this problem off into the hands of the theorists, but we still have a fair amount of experimental work to do. I see. And my understanding is that the experimental work has now been reproduced in several labs using this uh, new technology. The point of the 60 Minutes piece, which was somewhat obscured, actually, in the editing room, but we, SRI, were set out to reproduce some experiments performed in Israel by energetics based on the superwave principle. And I approached my sponsors at DARPA, and they gave me some funding to reproduce it, which we did successfully in parallel my colleagues in Italy at Enea, the Italian energy agency in Frascati, just outside Rome, also reproduced the experiments. So the, the claim that these experiments cannot be reproduced is false. They have been reprodu reproduced. In this case, specifically, the energetics superwave results were uh, replicated at SRI by me and my colleagues and in uh, Enea, also sponsored by the Italian government. And Dr. Dardick, uh, has there been much advance in uh, the theoretical end of this, Steve? Yes, I've been working on this and uh, actually writing a book on it in the process right now. There's a great simplicity to it on the one hand, but yet, as Dr. McCubrey just indicated, it has to be, the waves have to be properly implemented. There are different ways one can do it with electromagnetic waves. We've uh, looked at ultrasound and other methodologies in terms of creating the waves and shaping the waves in the proper pattern. And that we're in the process of enhancing of enhancing that those approaches and making them more practical to the point where we can also mathematically design the patterns, uh, which is something that we're in the process of doing now. Uh, is this getting close to the point where it could be developed commercially? That's a good question because um, we've discussed that a number of times. We've been moving rather quickly on the results. We want to be in a position, we think we will be uh, within the next year, be able to have reproducibility toward 100%, but then working on a, on a practical basis, we're talking about two to three years. I think you'd approach commercialization in stages, and the easiest thing to produce is heat, and that is what Fleischmann and Pons claimed at the outset, and that is the predominant result that has been obtained by energetics in Israel. And they ran a, a single experiment, which has been reproduced to a limited extent there, but they were able to boil water, they were able to generate 25 times more heat energy than the electrical power that was put into the experiment. So that is a product. You know, if we could do that on demand and the materials were cheap and the, and, the, and the system were safe, then to be able to boil water or create useful heat at 100 degrees centigrade for one twenty-fifth of the electrical input power is something that you might imagine making a product out of. Now, to me, that's not a very 
exciting product. I mean, that, that's heat. It's useful. It's good for mankind. And something like 40% of all of the energy on this planet is used in that temperature regime. But I think these experiments are capable of operating at higher temperatures. So we might imagine going up in temperature to the point that you could run a steam generator, for example, and use, as is done in you know the utility power industry. And in the, in the rosiest possible scenario, which is what 60 Minutes uh, led with, I think that we might be able to, at some point, demonstrate heat effects at six, seven, eight hundred degrees centigrade, where we can use thermoelectric conversion schemes to go, go uh, direct to electricity. That is, that is a dream. It's the holy grail, if you like, of energy production. But there's nothing that I know right now that would prohibit us doing that. But there's a lot of research between then and now. Is this field becoming more and more now accepted in the mainstream physics community? It's a slower process than I would like, I must tell you that. In general, we can convert people, you know, one by one, and some of your listeners will listen to this and be motivated to go back and look at the source uh, literature and dig through it themselves. And people that do that, by and large, come away, if not convinced, then at least optimistic. So the, the ball is rolling in our direction, but it is not moving very quickly. And there's not really hostility in the physics community either. I call it a crisis of ignorance. Our message is really not being heard. And part of that is because the stigma associated with the field, attached to the field, to the field by the pressure of the basically particle physics community in 1989, that stigma is still attached and people are just not motivated to go back and dig through the literature, talk to the experimenters and, and visit them in their laboratories. But those that do, in the very large part, come away either convinced or optimistic. Mm -hmm. And there's also the additional factor that where we are today on this planet with the energy crisis, uh, the uh, demand for, for ideas for something new is very powerful. And here we are with a results that are real and have been reproduced in independent laboratories. And this is something that uh, we need to pursue quickly. <laughs> I'm curious if maybe you have some final words regarding this whole issue of cold fusion. Well, having devoted 20 years of my my life to this, it's um, it is. It, I don't have a few words. I have <laughs> I have days worth of words for you. But it is the most important thing that I could have been working on. And people ask me, you know, wh why are you so stubborn? Why do you persist in the face of so much criticism? Quite frankly, I can't think of anything more important for me to work on. If you have any talent, any ability, any ideas in this particular research area, then I think you have a moral obligation to do it. And apart from that, it's very interesting science. So so I'm, I'm very happy to be involved with it and happy to be involved with new people and new ideas such as Dr. Dardick. Well, I'm happy to work with Dr. McCubrey. Uh, and I have the same sentiments in terms of where we are in the world today and where we need to be moving forward. And it's been a a very, very exciting period of time, and I know the future is going to be very bright in terms of us being able to develop new energy sources that will have such a positive impact on the planet. Well, I certainly uh, hope everyone takes a look at uh, the new research that's going on in this field. Uh, Dr. McCubrey, Dr. Dardick, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. And you were just listening to Dr. Michael McCubrey and Dr. Irving Dardick discussing recent advances in coal fusion. For more information, you can see the website energeticstechnologies.com.
This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. For today's topic, the uh, Grokatron 5000 would like to know uh, if the following five items in popular culture are hot or if they're cold, and maybe a little reason why. Dr. McCubrey, Dr. Darty, ready to play the game. Would you like us to sequence or answer simultaneously? Uh, maybe whoever chimes in first can have the Might answer. Might go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Hot or cold, item number one, the iPod. Hot. Is hot. That? Well, I own five of them, so it's so it's got to be got to be hot. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, item number two is a package of Viagra. It probably will be hot sometime in the future. At the moment, I I, I don't have an opinion. <laughs> I say on the cool side because of potential problem side effects in the long run. Okay. <laughs> all right, item number three is an interest-only mortgage. Yeah, you you touched me in a field of almost complete ignorance. So um, uh, cool. <laughs> okay. I'm on the same page. Right. <laughs> cool. Item number four is the national debt. Well, it's a hot topic, and, and clearly we need to do something about it, but I'm, I, I'm not very sympathetic with the situation that we find ourselves in. Warm. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully cool that down a bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. but it's in a warm stage. It's getting hotter. <laughs> All right, and uh, finally, number five, it's some Texas Hold'em poker chips. Cool, I guess. Right. Same hair, cool. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Uh, McCubrey, Dr. Dardick, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about all the very fascinating uh, developments that's going on in um, Cold Fusion. Thank you very well, thank, much. Thanks, thanks a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.